Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I am Nori's creative editor. I am joined by my co-host for this episode, her first time co-hosting, Rebecca Carlson, Nori's agriculture supply lead. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, Ross. Yeah, well, we had you on to talk about how Nori's supply side works recently. And this episode uh, came up and I thought I wanted to tag you in on it because your expertise is much more related than any expertise I possess is not related to this. So I'm happy to have you on with me today, Rebecca. As always, happy to be here. Love talking science and egg. Yeah, it's a common a common theme around here. And we are joined by Mike Milley of Join Bio. Mike is Join Bio CEO. Hey, Mike. Hi, Ross. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you. We originally started thinking about this show because we are interested in synthetic biology. And I imagine for someone listening, that is not a pairing of words they have come across yet. I think it's still something that is a bit farther out on the frontiers for the layperson. Could you give us a nice introduction to the the field and, and what you're trying to achieve? Sure. We are. Uh, so JOIN is um, a joint venture uh, that was uh, combined buyer, one of the, the leaders in agriculture with Ginkgo Bioworks, who is one of the leaders in synthetic biology with the purpose of applying the advances and technologies that have been growing on the synthetic biology side with the microbial and ag expertise that Bayer has, with the ultimate goal being to engineer microbes for very specific targets and unmet needs in agriculture. And this represented uh, an innovative move on the part of Bayer to look at the synthetic biology field and just try to decide or try to come up with ways to apply it to the innovation and unmet needs that agriculture is faced with. And so by teaming up with Ginkgo Bioworks, it allowed Join to tap into what Ginkgo has built up over the last eight years. And this is what's now called synthetic biology. It's also called industrial biotech. But it basically is starting with microbes and fermentation and the belief that you can engineer a microbe to do very specific tasks better than or in in let's say in comparison to synthetic chemistry and so you're actually programming these microbes to produce specific products or to produce specific outcomes in a fermentation tank as an alternative to traditional chemistries that are used out there. And this has really exploded over the last five to 10 years as the cost of sequencing a genome has dropped dramatically, the high throughput instrumentation uh, and technology has advanced, and we're now able to go in and sequence and edit and understand these microbes at the genetic level, at the DNA level. And so ultimately what what Ginkgo is doing or what what they were based on is taking the programming that originated with computers, where you're programming with zeros and ones, 
and simply saying, okay, we're going to apply that approach to biology, to to the DNA, to the, the bases in DNA, the four bases, and we're going to look at programming microbes the same way you would program a computer. And that was 10 years ago when, when Tom Knight and the MIT team that he brought out founded Ginkgo. And they've built it up now over these last eight years into one of the real powerhouses that's leveraging this technology, not only in agriculture, but in biofuels, in pharma applications, in specialty chemicals, in fragrances. So all of these different industries are utilizing this approach of engineering a microbe for a very specific purpose and doing it in a way that is both beneficial and cost-effective relative to the alternatives. When you say that you're engineering a microbe, is this a microbe that has never before in the history of Earth existed in terms of a species or as a distinct organism? Is that what you mean to say? No, and that's actually where the term synthetic biology is a little misleading. What we're actually doing is taking natural microbes in many cases, beneficial or natural microbes, and making very specific engineering changes to them in very specific pathways or in very specific genes to optimize them for a specific purpose. So that chassis or that microbe, most of it is, in fact, it starts with what nature has already given us. It's a natural microbe, and we're just using the tools of synthetic biology to program it or optimize it for very specific purposes. I remember seeing experiments. I think I saw this originally in Carl Sagan's Cosmos, where they were trying to do a lab-produced abiogenesis of just <laughs> combining like amino acids and trying to have organisms emerge out of the primordial soup. So you're a little bit farther downstream than that. Definitely, yeah. No, we are, our, our starting point, Ginkgo and, the, and all the other major players in synthetic biology today that are using it for industrial applications or industrial purposes, they all start with natural microbes that nature has already advanced over thousands and millions of years. And using these genetic tools that have been developed over the last 10 years, along with the sequencing, to be able to program or uh, selectively engineer these microbes for very specific purposes. Is Perhaps a better analogy for understanding this, something like the microbes that you're working with are the rootstocks, and then you're sort of grafting on new attributes genetically that you want these new combinations, this new type of life that you've combined to embody uh, both the rootstock and the scion. Is that closer to it? It is. It, it's, it's really thinking about, think about, in our case, think about that microbe as being a chassis. And then... What we engineer into that chassis is like a cargo or a payload. And so the chassis becomes the delivery mechanism for that cargo. And so you're still starting with this natural microbe as the chassis and then optimizing it with a cargo or a payload that you then deliver. In our case, you would deliver to the soil or you deliver to a plant. Oh, this is so fascinating as we're thinking about like science applied to well, designing nature almost to our agricultural systems. And this isn't the first time we've we've done such things, but as we're thinking about synthetic biology and I had a definition, I heard a definition of it's kind of like using 
bio as kind of a design problem. Basically, like how do we go around and design biology to what we need? And how would you explain the difference between like synthetic biology, which is like, you know, new and sexy to a point with classical breeding and like GMOs and like the difference, how we're applying those to agriculture? So a couple of things, I think the synthetic biology and, and what we're talking about now, it's very much designed. It's being very specific about the engineering, very purposeful about the engineering that you're doing. If you look at traditional plant breeding, there you're, cro- you're doing crosses and you're, you're letting the plant itself sort of uh, evolve into the, it, it evolve and grow with these changes. With transgenic or GMO plants, you're actually taking those genes from, say, a, uh, a microbe and inserting them into the plant. So whether it's putting a, a crytoxin or a BT uh, into a corn plant, or whether you're putting in a gene that makes a soybean plant Roundup resistant, there you're actually doing the editing or the gene introduction into the plant genome. What we're doing is, is quite a bit different, which is taking advantage of the fact that there is a plant microbiome, that, that microbes play a crucial role in the soil and the plant and the rhizosphere and the health of that plant. and then simply editing or optimizing that microbe to deliver a cargo. So you're not actually engineering the plant itself, but rather you're engineering the microbe that's then going to deliver the cargo or deliver, the, in our case, nitrogen, the nitrogen to that plant as a way of providing a new solution for a grower who's out there trying to produce the soybean or the corn crop that they're working on. So what is joint bio doing within the space, within corn, and how are we making changes via microbial editing, I guess, to corn? When we launched joint bio, it was just about three years ago in, in October of 2017. Our flagship or our premier project uh, that we wanted to focus on was trying to come up with a solution or an alternative to synthetic fertilizer. And I think one of the things that agriculture as a whole really needs to focus on more than maybe they have historically is the environment and the environmental impact and reducing the environmental impact, negative environmental impact that agriculture as a whole has and and the impact or the resulting impact in climate change and, and what's happening there from a sustainability standpoint. And so if you just take nitrogen fertilizer itself, on one hand, it's absolutely critical for the production of agriculture today and and or whether it's in the US or even on a global basis and it's almost single-handedly responsible for the global population growth from the early 1900s to today it, it tracks exactly with the the use of nitrogen and the population growth and we would not be able to feed the planet today without synthetic fertilizer the problem is that the production of that fertilizer with this Haber, with the Haber-Bosch process results in close to 3% of the greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a, it's a very intense, fuel-intense, uh, energy-intense process that releases a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So you've got a, a, a sustainability issue and an impact on climate change there. You also have a great deal of runoff that results from the heavy use of the fertilizer 
around rivers in, in, cor in the corn and cereal and the different crops there in the Midwest, you have tremendous amount of runoff that is also causing other environmental issues down in the Gulf from that. And so everybody, it's, it's this dilemma. Everybody realizes that you, know, that you have to have it. And at the same time, it's not sustainable. And so what we're doing is something people have been looking at for 30, 40, 50 years is trying to develop a microbe that will fix nitrogen from the air and transfer it to that corn plant such that the grower can reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizer by 40 to 50%. And this would be, this would have a tremendous impact right out of the gate from an, a, a climate change and environmental sustainability standpoint. If you, if you just could reduce that amount of synthetic fertilizer, cut it in half, that makes a huge difference from a, an environmental impact perspective. So our, our purpose or our, our objective is to find that microbe and be able to design it in such a way that it fixes the nitrogen and transfers it to that corn plant, allowing that grower to cut the use of the fertilizer by 40 or 50%, but, and the key part here, but have the same yield. So positively impact their financial position, not negatively impact it, and at the same time, have a positive impact on the environment. That would be fascinating, and I would be very curious to see how this plays out. I have a bit of an odd question, Mike. I hope you'll indulge me. I'm not playing around at the level of thousands of acres. I do take my backyard gardening pretty seriously, though. And I very much like nitrogen-fixing plants as companions for fruit trees and other types of productive plants. And I, I try to think in that way. Although I had recently been looking at some of the plants that are recommended like autumn olive. And then I had seen that autumn olive has become quite a pest in the Midwest and the East because a lot of these berry-producing, nitrogen-fixing bushes are extremely hardy because they can grow in degraded soil and because they fix their own nitrogen, they can just run hog wild basically and do whatever they want and outcompete native species. Is there a risk in your mind that corn becomes invasive in that same kind of way? No, I think I don't think there is. I think the better analogy from a, a farming and an agriculture perspective is to look at soybeans. So soybeans have these uh, uh, ribosomal nodules. They, they have these microbes that are uh, in these nodules in their roots that fix nitrogen. And so as a result, soybeans need little to no fertilizer. As a matter of fact, a lot of growers in the Midwest will actually rotate soybeans with corn. And so when they plant the soybeans, after a year of, of, of soybeans, the soil in many cases will actually have more nitrogen in it than before it was planted. So it's almost regenerative in a way. Uh, and people use other cover crops this way to try to, you know, in a regenerative way. And then the next year when you plant the corn, that nitrogen then is, is pulled out. It, it's, you know, the corn will, uh, will deplete the nitrogen in addition to the fertilizer that you've applied. But if you envision, if you imagine a corn plant that also has microbes, that are attached to the corn roots or the corn plant fixing that nitrogen, you would have the same benefit then. You would reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizer, but that corn plant would have the nutrition that it needs. 
And this is like, you know, the holy grail of, of agriculture, right? Having nitrogen fixing corn to reduce the reduction, great for farmers because there's less chemical dependence and like great for the environment, right? Because like you said, the impact of synthetic nitrogen on our entire world and like the carrying capacity of our world is huge. And so we reduce that. I mean, that's an ultimate goal. And in this like geeking out mode, I'm like very curious. Can you explain a little bit of how you're attempting to like harness these microbes, to, like increase their productivity to, to actually like affect the entire corn plant repeatedly over soil types? I can. The I think the the first and most important thing is you have to find chassis or microbes that colonize that corn plant that associate with the plant symbiotically and are able to exist through the life cycle of that corn plant. The, the most valuable time to be able to provide the nitrogen to the corn plant is in the second half of the, uh, is in the second half of the life cycle when it's actually producing the corn itself. And so if you have a microbe that uh, lives with or colonizes that corn plant through that second half of its life cycle, that's when that nitrogen is most valuable to it. So you you need a, a microbe that colonizes the plant. The second thing we need is it has to be able to fix the nitrogen. It has to have the pathway and the machinery inside of it that's actually able to take nitrogen from the air and convert it into ammonia and then actually transfer it to the plant. And that process, we can actually engineer to optimize it. Um, so you're looking to do both of these things, both colonize the plant through its life cycle and fix the nitrogen from the air and transfer it to the corn plant. And all of that requires a special relationship, if you will, between that microbe and the corn plant. And this is this is that plant microbiome concept that this is all based on, is that Microbes do associate in a very positive way with plants that are out there and are a critical part of their of their growth and their health. And in the same way that we're sort of at the early stages of understanding and learning about the human gut microbiome or the animal microbiome and how critical those are to gut health and human health, we're at the same early stage of really understanding just how much microbes both in the soil and associated with the plant, are impacting that plant and its health and its, uh, and its growth cycle. Rebecca, I'm curious what you think about our audience and how they might feel. I can imagine some of our audience thinking this is amazing. And then, Mike, I imagine some other portion of it might say, why don't you just grow in a polyculture environment? Is this not just prolonging a monoculture corn, a sea of corn for the Midwest, which I think a lot of our listeners would, would argue that that system isn't worth saving, but I can imagine other, basically our listeners would yell at each other, Mike, maybe, <laughs> maybe you can split the difference for them. Yeah, I think, again, I think the challenge for agriculture, if you look out over the next 10 or 20 years is, you know, trying to do two things, provide the food slash nutrition to the planet, to the, you know, to, to people from a food security uh, and in a nutrition perspective. And at the same time, do that in a sustainable and resilient way so that you're, you're able to do it in a consistent, but, in, but a sustained environmentally sustainable way so that you're not essentially destroying the environment 
in exchange for being able to provide people food. You have to find, you've got to find that balance between providing the nutrition and providing the food with uh, having solutions and having practices, agricultural practices as a whole that are long-term and sustainable and ultimately environmentally friendly. And I think this is where some of the, you know, the regenerative ag perspective is coming. And I do think, I think really what, where biotech, where technology is going to play a role in this is, is in solving some of these issues. So whether, you know, it's us with, with finding uh, alternatives to synthetic fertilizer, whether we eventually, maybe we find a, we find microbes that uh, facilitate and enhance uh, the carbon sequestration in the soil. I mean, there are a number of huge unmet needs directly related to sustainability and climate change and, and the environment that need to be part of the consideration and part of the innovation that comes with these agricultural applications and solutions without losing sight of the fact that ultimately we need farmers who have profitable businesses and we need farmers who are going to put the food that we all take for granted in a Costco and a Walmart and a, you know, in a, in a, a grocery store, they have to put that food there. And so you're, you're always trying to balance those two things, the, to create a sustainable environment and still be able to deliver food to people from a food security standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting to think about how we're having like these new tools applied to agriculture, right? Synthetic biology is, we're at the, the cusp of it, right? We're so, there's so much to understand. There's so much to be applied to agriculture, but we don't know it yet. And the last time we had such like a, such a powerful tool really applied to agriculture, I'm like drawing parallels to the green revolution, right? When synthetic chemistry was really applied at scale to agriculture. And so this idea of like bringing in synthetic biology and applying it to a, a larger scale is like almost in turn could like create almost a second green revolution, right? Of we're actually harnessing biology, one of our most powerful tools in our own favor. But in parallel to the, you know, Norman Borlaug's contributions of like the, the critics of it are like with, when this was applied, we didn't necessarily, we didn't foresee the long-term effects of the environmental side of things of of human rights side of things of like the reliance of farmers really on like on big ag for synthetic chemistry. And so I'm really curious is to hear your perspective of like, how do you think synthetic biology and applying microbes at scale to agriculture, how it'll actually like change the landscape again in, dif in a different way. What are some of the negative implications you see further down the line of having this at scale? First of all, I think it's hard to anticipate or hard to know you know, that far out or how these changes are going to play out. I think that uh, anytime you're bringing new innovation and you're bringing new technologies to the market, you have to do two things. You have to look at what's the benefit that you're bringing. And, and I, I do believe that if those benefits are big enough, people will give that technology a chance. So if you're, if you've got a, a GMO papaya approach, if you've got a, an engineered papaya seed that saves the papaya crop in Hawaii, people will adopt it even though they're anti-GMO. You'll see the same thing with potatoes. You'll see the same thing with the chestnut that's going, you know, that they're going to have to rescue the chestnut. If you, if you provide a big enough benefit 
to people, whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in medicine, it doesn't matter. People will be open to at least looking at that technology. But the second part of that is you also have an obligation to show that that technology is safe. And by safe, you know, obviously you look at it relative to people, you look at it relative to the environment, to insect world, to the bees, all these, there's all these different perspectives that you have to be able to test for and look at in anticipation. And so there's, to me, there's, there's both a showing the benefit and also doing everything you can to make sure that you are doing no harm or that there is no negative impact associated with, with what you're doing. And I think, I think the fact that we've turned back to biology, that we've turned back to microbes and natural microbes that have been around for thousands and millions of years as a starting point and as we understand, as we learn more about the microbiome and how all these things fit together, I think we're going to find positives in all this and not negatives at this point. But I also think, you know, like anything, there will be some things to watch out for. There will be some things that you do put regulations in around because not everything that's innovative is guaranteed to be safe. Right. What kind of um, regulations would you, do you kind of foresee? Well, I think a lot of the a lot of the hurdles and 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 requirements that are in, that are in place today are important. I think you know you have to look at non-target species, you have to look at uh, groundwater, you have to look at the impact potentially on climate change. You want to understand when you put something out there how persistent is it? You have to have you have to be able to show people, okay, what happens at the end of this growing season? Uh, what what impact is that uh, application or is that microbe having on other species or other microbes in that environment? And then also, is it just you have to do some of the basic toxicology work, right? You want to make sure that what you're putting out there is both safe to handle. For the app, you know, for the application. And at the same time, that it's not going to have any negative impact or any carry through to the consumer. And so looking at, looking at this innovation and looking at these changes, you have to put yourself in the shoes of a consumer. You have to put your shoe, yourself in the shoes of the grower. And you also have to put your shoes sort of in the, uh, in the shoes of the regulator who's also has the responsibility of making sure that the environment and the toxicology and stuff that you've, that you have met the requirements and what you're putting out there has passed at this point, everything we know that's required to be safe. Less on consequentialist grounds. Do you either anticipate or currently see many bioethical objections to synthetic biology as a whole? I do. I think that the, I think because of the history of, of how the GMO plant, uh, the transgenic plant, GMO plant innovations, how, the, how they came into the market and the resist the timing and the resistance and just the way the whole GMO movement, you know, sort of came about, I think it would be pretty naive to think that's suddenly going to go away. And I think so. I think anybody who works in biotech, anybody who works in synthetic biology, anybody who works in in any kind of genomic or engineering capacity, I, I think you have to be very aware of the the different perspectives out there. I think you have to be respectful of it. And I think one of the things I've learned is that that 
trying to um, use science as an explanation to to a consumer or to a an NGO group or something is really tough. I mean, they you just get lost in it. What you really have to do is be able to talk about the benefit at a high level and make sure people understand why you're doing it and what the benefit's going to be. And then you have to be able to show at some level what you've done to ensure that it's uh, that it's going to be safe. I think the synthetic biology world will continue to face some level of headwinds and resistance just because you know it's new and people don't fully understand it. And there is a sort of a historical base from the GMO situation that's not going to just go away. And I think, you know, and I also think it's going to be geographical to a certain extent. I think the the resistance and the attitudes towards this are clearly much stronger in Europe than they are, say, in the United States today. I think it would be, again, I think it'd be naive to think that that's suddenly going to change uh, in the next 10 or 20 years. So you have to go into these ventures, you have to go into these efforts with a clear understanding that that hurdle is going to be there and you're going to have to deal with it. What else do you have in mind for uh, synthetic biology in your professional life, Mike, um, besides focusing on nitrogen fixing corn, which I agree with Rebecca that <laughs> sort of would be a kind of holy grail. So additionally, if there's a second holy grail, what else might it be? What else is on the horizon for a climate, agriculture, and synthetic biology? So I think there's there's an so if you look specifically if we look specifically at agriculture, I think that in addition to nitrogen fixation, uh, I, I think we're we're fascinated with this concept of carbon sequestering and and microbes playing a potential role in that and optimizing and engineering microbes that that enhance that process. I think that's a an interesting one. We can also look at other nutrients like phosphate and such, all of which are about sort of providing nutrition to that plant as an alternative to chemical solutions. We also have a number of programs going that are looking at both uh, pest or insect control as well as disease issues to provide disease control or pest control to plants. Again, as an alternative to a synthetic chemical or an al- as an alternative to a, an engineered trait. So again, if you, if you put yourself in the shoes of a grower out there, they've got a lot of adversity and a lot of uncertainty coming at them every year, whether it's the weather, whether it's regulatory changes, the changes in, the, in consumer demand. And more recently, I think one of the biggest things is just climate change. I mean, weather's been a challenge for farmers for a long time. And right now, those changes, whether it's amount of water, lack of water, abiotic stress, temperature, all these things are changing at a really rapid rate. And if you're a farmer, that's tough because the time it takes the industry to bring new solutions to the market right now is 10, 12 years. But the changes that these guys are getting hit with, they're coming much faster. And a lot of that is from climate change. I think there's a real imperative for all technologies, and I think synthetic biology is one, to be leveraged to not only provide new solutions to these growers, but to also provide them faster. And I think that the vaccine race for the COVID is a great example where if somebody, if you suddenly have to do something 
how fast can you do it? And in, in a traditional vaccine is what, five, seven, 10 years, and people are going to try to do it in one to two because of, because of the benefit and because of the need. And I think the same thing's going to happen with agriculture, that those needs are going to be there and people are going to find ways to bring new solutions faster. And then if you step back outside of ag and say, well, where else is synthetic biology going to play a role? It's clearly going to play a role in pharma and biotech medicine. It's clearly going to play a role um, in uh, plant-based foods and, and uh, food ingredients that's already happening, specialty chemicals, fragrances. What synthetic biology is doing today is is starting to grow and starting to learn all the different ways that that technology can make existing businesses or existing markets better. And it's not going to solve every problem, but I do believe it's going to it's going to find a growing contribution to a number of these businesses as a better alternative, as a more sustainable alternative to the current practices. And that's what's that's what's exciting about being in the synthetic biology field in world that ginkgo's in, and that's for join. That's what's so exciting to us is be able to take that technology and bring it to the agricultural community. I think it's truly fascinating. And I hope you don't think that we're, we're picking on you or asking too many hard questions, Mike. I hope that shows genuine intellectual <laughs> engagement more than anything. One of the questions I have about this is we don't understand microbiology super well, in my understanding. I think not that many of the species in the microbiota have been even named. I think a lot of there's a lot of unknowns, especially about interactions between them. So if you're designing new organisms that would fit into that system, how do you ensure it does actually play a productive role rather than one that doesn't mess up this complex interplay? And I also will say as a caveat that if you take this complexity point that I'm making seriously, you would not be able to move because every action you take involves interacting with complex systems, the repercussions of which you will probably never know. So I'm not saying, <laughs> don't take it too seriously, but surely some of it must be taken seriously. So how should we do it? No, I think it's a great point. And I think the first point, which is that we're just at the at the very beginning of understanding not just the the complexity and scope of the of the microbial world but also then you know all of the different aspects of interaction interaction in the soil interaction with a plant interaction in our guts uh another whole world that's going to i think is going to explode over the next 5 years is is better understanding of microbes with skin with with human you know with our skin and skin care and and uh the association of microbes with skin health i mean all of these things we're just learning and i think what it if, if you just step back and look at it it's like whoa i mean microbes are everywhere and, you know, you measure them in, in billions, right? I think a, a, a teaspoonful of soil has a billion microbes in it. I mean, it's just the, the, the numbers and the complexity is just staggering. So trying to go from there to do we understand everything about every action we take? The answer is, of course not. I mean, we're just way too early in that. And whether it's using these technologies to optimize microbes for, for gut health in humans or gut health in animals, 
or whether it's using these microbes to enhance plant health and plant production, you really are, we're at a point where we probably are going to have not all of the actions and not, not all of the things we do, we're going to understand everything that happened, you know, that happens as a result of that. But it's also equally true that we don't understand that today. I mean, we, you know, we, a good example is, you know, the whole till no till argument, right? So, you know, for years, farmers have gone in and, and, you know, tilled, plowed and tilled the field, turned it up. Well, who knows what they're doing to the microbial population? It might be good. It might be bad. <laughs> but that's that's what we did with, you know, that's how people farmed. And people are finally starting to now look at, at no-till and, and some of the benefits of that on a number of different levels. To me, all of this is really about science moving forward. And as science moves forward, we all get more information. And the more information we get, the better decisions and the better perspectives we can have on what products to put out there and where to take, where to take these innovations and how to apply them or how to use them in a productive way to help the planet, to help people, to help produce food. Uh, and so it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a learning curve. And to, but to your point, if, if you're not willing to take some risk and you're not willing to accept that you're going to have to learn things, you would never do anything. And I think the one thing I think everybody would agree on today is that the status quo in agriculture, if nothing changes, we're going to have a huge problem in 20 years, in 30 years with providing, you know, food security and nutrition to the planet. It's just not going to happen. So you, you have to accept that standing still is unacceptable, whether it's from an environmental sustainability or from a food production, you can't stay still. And so that's why you have to move forward. You have to take some chances. You have to do the innovation. And then you have to believe you're going to do it in such a way that you are protecting people in the planet at the same time as looking at evaluating and advancing new solutions. This is absolutely fascinating, Mike. I am so interested in, like, I mean, you're using powerful tools of synthetic biology and then working like the wild west, right, of <laughs> soil health and uh, the microbial community of soil. So as we're moving forward, I'm so excited to like follow the work of Join Bio. Um, where could our listeners learn more about what y'all are doing? We're a small company. A lot of the work we're doing at this stage is relatively proprietary. Um, we're really kind of pioneering this area. So we're a little bit careful about we're not an open book and we don't tell everybody everything. At the same time, we're making, you know, we, we try to provide some updates on our website. We're trying to get out, you know, via podcasts and these type of uh, communications. We're trying to let people know about what we're doing and why. I think that's the important thing. And I think we'll continue to do that. And actually, in your case, Rebecca, you know, you can call me anytime. And uh, we can also, once uh, we, we can have normal face-to-face <laughs> -face meetings, we'll, uh, we can have you uh, come and visit the lab there in Boston. And you can meet some of the scientists and, uh, and we can kind of give you a picture of the progress we're making and, and, uh, and what the timelines look like. Amazing. Will be a fascinating uh, field trip, I'd say. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. The ultimate dream for us would be to uh, to bring you out to a a field trial and uh, show you the the field that has normal fertilizer and show you the field that the grower used half of what he normally would and they both look the same. I mean, that's really in a in a nutshell what what we're trying to uh, trying to accomplish as as quickly as we can and. Uh, we're uh, at this point. We're pretty optimistic uh, that we're going to get there, but predicting the exact timeline is a bit of a challenge. Uh, just like everything, I think in science is. Well, thank you so much for being here, Mike. Links to all of those things are in the show notes. If you'd like to follow up and learn more about Join Bio, uh, thanks, Mike. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Oh, thanks, Ross, and uh, thanks, Rebecca. It's been a real pleasure, and. Uh, Look forward to uh, catching up at a, sometime in the future with both of you. Take care. You too. And thanks for hanging out, Rebecca. Congratulations on your first co-host. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it was great. And if you're listening and you'd like to support the show, one thing you could do that Rebecca and I would certainly appreciate is going into your podcast app on your iPhone right now, uh, giving us five stars, writing us a nice review. It helps us get more content out to more people. And we think that's important. I'm sure you do too, because you're spending your valuable time listening to us. So please do that if you can. And thanks so much for listening. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.